0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, sick in both body and mind, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Michael Walker, pure, smooth, unctuous, and satisfying like
1: mama's apple pie. How are you doing, Walker? That's me. I'm doing great. I'm super excited. We're off from a full weekend of gaming. Actually, that's
0: why I've got this sort of uh, bug in my throat. I've got a little bit of the 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 con-plague you, I think a full weekend of yelling at people to explain games and then yelling at them for not having paid attention to the game explanation and then yelling at them for playing wrong is uh it's worn me out
1: and so now I hardly have the energy to yell at you anymore so but that being said we got to introduce people to all sorts of new and interesting games i even had someone ask me to show them a interesting and exciting deck builder so i went and grabbed eon's end and i used it as a step stool to get Uh, my Mystic Veil off the top shelf, so that was great. I'm not cut out to be a troll walker, especially
0: when the Aeon (laughs) Zen folks are so much more... They clearly have more endurance than I do for the topic. You're killing me here. It's all good. All right. So, we're going to mix things up this week. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. We're going to talk about our feature game, which is Too Many Bones, specifically the new Undertow expansion. And then our topic this week is going to be difficulty in co-ops how hard should co-ops be so that in mind let us just jump right into the games we played last week walker what did you play last week well we
1: got ethnos out again i think we should talk more about ethnos because i think it's just a fantastic game the pacing is amazing the flow is there it's player draw mark player draw it's true being able to chant that as people when and if people take
0: too long is great the i I noticed there are two very strange verbal ticks. That I introduced that seem to have caught hold locally. One is saying orcboard over and over and over again with respect to anything that has even remote verbal similarity to "orkboard." Uh, the other is when you pull a dragon, saying "dragon" in the highest falsetto you can possibly imagine uh, before proceeding to the next step. Ethnos is a fantastic
1: game with huge variability. All these different races. That you form this deck with, and each race has its own ability. And you're playing down either sets of colors or sets of races to get uh, area control on this map. And it's just a great, quick little game by Simon Ethnos. Got to play El Grande. There were, this was
0: actually at the start of the event that we were at this weekend. A bunch of people were milling around wondering what to play. And I said, you know what? I am surrounded by a whole bunch of people who call themselves gamers, and none of these people have played El Grande, and that is a shame. So we played vanilla El Grande without any of the expansions, although some of the expansions I do enjoy. El Grande is in many ways still, I think, the best area-majority game that there is you know when playing a coin game or a lot of the more complicated games i often wish i were playing el grande instead and this was a great game came right down to the wire the winning the 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 winning score was one higher than the second place score and this was in a game where where multiple people scored in excess of 100 points it was tense it was fluid in other words it was a game of el grande i've never i have yet to play a game of el grande that stagnated or lacked tension as the game went on it's aged so very very well much like my fine co-host and so I cannot recommend El Grande enough. I haven't played the new uh, Z-Man Big ba- Big Box version, but at least I've seen pictures, and at least one thing is true of that version over the version that I have, which is that they don't have misprints on the board. It's obnoxious. They they misprinted the names of the provinces on the board. They got rid of some of the double Ls, and which is a huge pronunciation deal uh, for when you're you're pronouncing the, the names of the Spanish regions. But not that it really matters. It is very very abstract. It was originally themed around the Trojan War, after all. But El Grande is a marvelous game, and if you call yourself a gamer and you haven't played it yet, then I think that there's something serious. There, it's a serious lacuna in your experience, and I recommend you give it a shot, whether or not you like area-majority games, because it might change your mind.
1: And so that's El Grande, a perennial, perennial favorite of many a gamer. You and I got to play a new game called Who Goes There? It's a fantastic produ- produced game. Yes. I've never seen anything like it since Mechs and Minions. It's very pretty. Everything fits perfectly in. It's got these fantastic inserts. The multi-level
0: character boards... They yeah. hold everything nice and tight until you pay the experience to unlock them, and then they go up to the main board. The art style is very, very good. It's it's sort of a vaguely evocative of a French comic book style, but and the miniatures are extremely... Oh, yeah, it's
1: a this, beautiful, beautiful game. This would all be fantastic, except for the fact that you actually have to play the game.
0: Yeah, that is a bit of a downside. I mean, that is probably one of the weaker elements of the game, you know, the game itself.
1: All right, that being said... Now, I was thinking about it, neither you or I like Dead of Winter, no. nor do we like Police Precinct. I don't know even if you've played Police Precinct. I haven't. But I'm going to throw all of these games into a genre I'm going to call deck milling games, and I just don't like deck milling games, and I really think that Who Goes There has more issues than that, but that is definitely one of them. It is a, a game based on... It's a game based on the novella Who Goes There, which inspired the movie The Thing. There you go. So in many ways I'm is... searching for the director's name of, is... of the thing but yes John Carpenter. John Carpenter. So this is some...
0: more the thing than the thing. This is the hipster the thing. This is the this is this is the thing before it was cool.
1: And when I when I read things about it I thought it was fantastic. You pass this clicker back and forth, you know, determining to see if you know the person you're bunking with is the thing or the person you just traded to is the thing. And now you're a thing. And then you have to do this crazy math equation, you know, times pi times the elevation of the helicopter and the, and how many times the propeller's gone around. And if you beat that number, then you get to fly two steps in the air. Walker it's, with, it's... with so many flaws of the game, you don't need to embellish one. The it's, final, it's... <laughs> the final calculation
0: is merely times six. <laughs> That's not a massive math no, problem. It's true. it's a little it's a little abstract to keep having to remind people what times six it is, making the final determination anyway, to to a certain extent, I think we're bearing the lead. I think you're exactly right. It is fundamentally a deck milling game in order to accumulate victory points, you just need to go and do this risky thing, and over and over, which is drawing from these decks. And very often, you're going to get nothing for it, and drawing a card will constitute at least at least a third or more of your turn. I think we need to spend at least a, you, you a couple minutes. No, no, no. Bury this even more? Sure. Well, no. Here, here's, here was my biggest concern when reading the rulebook. When reading the rulebook, I was concerned about two factors. One factor was it seemed like the kind of game where individuals wouldn't do much on their turn, but the game would last very long, two to three hours. And that was very much borne out. The other thing that I was very concerned about was once you are infected, once you're a member of the aliens, once you become a, a traitor, your victory conditions do not change. They become the exact same as they were before. You get points the same way, you accumulate them the same way, and you score the same way. It's just now your score is added to a different tally. And my immediate reaction to that was, so where's the substance to the paranoia? What action is the suspect individual going to perform to cause people to become suspicious of this individual? How do they have to hide? And the answer is they don't. There's no change to the gameplay. You're involved in a tedious deck milling exercise, unless and until you might become infected, and then you continue the tedious deck milling exercise. It's just now you're on the other team. And I, I won't you, you clearly don't have the stomach for going on for the next 10 minutes about uh, many of the other awful things that the thing uh, that, that who goes there does. but that was one of the biggest concerns for me and and for what it is worth, I agree with you that it belongs in a lot of those deck milling games, but it also to me belongs in the same category as games like Battlestar Galactica, which tries to involve paranoia and intrigue, but just has a s- overcumbered system that goes on too long and is just tedious bookkeeping until such time as something weird happens
1: anyway. That's right. And it has this great crafting system where you get to build your weapons and stuff, but they made it so difficult to do that that it it doesn't make it interesting and fun. It just makes it even more tedious and painful. I agree. And that is who
0: goes there. I got in some of the expansions from Streetmasters that I didn't have access to before. When we did our initial review, we had access to the original Kickstarter base pledge, which had tons and tons and tons of content. And the uh, Blacklist Games, which is the company founded by the Sadler Brothers, has made the subsequent material available on their web store, namely the Twin Tiger expansion as well as the Redemption expansion. So I picked those up. And so I've been playing a number of games with the new stuff. And I have to say that the sheer amount of content available is very, very, very good. And every time I've been playing, I've I've just been reminded of some of my reflections when we initially reviewed it was, in many ways, I wish this is what Sentinel Tactics had been. Because it's very similar to Sentinels of the Multiverse in terms of structure, in terms of how the decks work and so on, but it has this lovely little low-maintenance spatial aspect to really give some teeth. And it actually... It's so low-maintenance actually that it makes it easier to play because you don't have to worry about who is the target with the lowest hit points or the highest hit points or whatever. No, instead you get to... consider things like adjacency and proximity, which are easier to easier to eyeball in many instances. But the problem is that the theme of Street Masters is much less compelling than the incredibly compelling universe of Sentinels of the Multiverse. So I, I wish, in, in an ideal universe, Street Masters would be the, the Sentinel Tactics game. But I have been enjoying the new content. Uh, playing new fighters is always great. Uh, I was a bit disappointed that the Kickstarter-exclusive expansion, uh, Legend of Oni, didn't have any new characters, because new characters are always what I gravitate towards and stuff like this. So anyway, I've been I've been continuing to enjoy Street Masters, and the new stuff is great. I can't thoroughly recommend that you go pick it up from the web store because they've been having serious fulfillment issues. You know, orders have been seriously delayed. I'm still waiting on replacement stuff that I asked for back in June, and I still haven't received any replacement stuff. Anyhow, they've been having some growing pains as a company, but uh, I've been enjoying some more Street
1: Masters, specifically Twin Tiger. Nice. I got to introduce, Mark, to Level 7 by Privateer Press. Well, Level 7 Invasion. There are, Level, three, sorry, there yeah. are three Level 7 games now. Level 7, Inva- Level 7 Invasion. It's a dudes-on-a-map co-op game that I don't think has been uh, replicated anywhere that I know of. And uh, a fantastic game where you got to lead this, you know, alien scientist across the world while he, while he works on this virus to drive back the, the alien invaders and... As you kill the alien invaders, they adapt and get new abilities to, you know, push you back. And I think overall, I think everyone enjoyed it, even though there were some reservations about it. But I think overall, everyone had a good time.
0: I enjoyed it a great deal. I don't know that I'd play it again. It was a little too procedural and a little too easy for my tastes. Again, more on that later on in our topic. And so, you know, it's got a 15-step turn structure and, uh, so in a way I'm surprised you enjoy it as much as you do because you've, you've been opening my eyes to the importance of good flow and level seven invasion has no flow. It has anti-flow. It has, you know, several points of the game things screech to a halt because you have to remind people, no, 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 that happens two steps from now. Now we're doing this thing and this leads to this other thing and so forth. I wish it were a little bit harder. I wish it led to a little bit more genuine cooperation. It seemed to kind of give you blinkers just to focus on your own continent there were a number of ways that that the game prevented you limit limiting the trades cards only affecting your own area and so assistance was a little bit strange it also has a personal bugbear of mine fixed number of factions regardless of the number of players so there's always going to be five factions in play so that's awkward five especially is really awkward for player count That's basically five or one is the only way to make sure that everyone plays the same number of factions, which is a strange preference of mine, but nonetheless, it's one that I have, but you're absolutely right. The adaptation system, the research system is just, is very, very, very cool and is, is very fun to deal with. I still prefer Level 7 Omega Protocol. They're radically different games, of course. There have been three games in the system. As I said, there's Level 7 Escape, which was kind of dreck. Uh There was Omega Protocol, which I think is the best 1v-all tactical game. And then there's Level 7 Invasion. And uh, Will Skuvaner from Privateer has had his hands in all of them. And they're very, very, very different games. But I think it looks like they're not doing anything else with the sort of series that they've done, because the last thing they did, they did was Invasion, and that was four or five years ago, so... But yeah, I enjoyed Level Seven Invasion. Thank you for showing it to me. Don't know that I'll be clamoring to play it again.
1: No, it's definitely like I said. I think it's like a once a, once a year type event game for sure. Sure. We also got to try Grand Austria Hotel. This is something that I've been wanting to try because
0: it it is a kind of a euro game with a vaguely dice action selection thing. And it was co-designed by uh, Simone Luciani, who co-designed The Voyages of Marco Polo, which, as you well know, we are both big fans of, and also involves a Euro dice selection mechanic thing. It was alright. It was, again, a little too procedural. I I found, actually, that the dice were kind of detracted from the overall game, because very frequently you would desperately need something. In order to progress in just running your hotel, which is a charming enough theme, but the dice just didn't give it to you because there are these hard caps on acquiring certain things, specifically cake and coffee. And if the dice say that you don't get any cake or coffee, you don't get any cake or coffee. And that's kind of a bit unfortunate. It wasn't even like in Voyages of Marco Polo, where you could just spend scarce resources to make the dice fit what you wanted. You were pretty much boned in in many instances. And that and the fact that the downtime was pretty bad, especially given how it works on a serpentine turn order. Everyone has two actions, but it's in a folding turn order. And that just made it feel really more cumbersome than the game was. If you're first or second in turn order, you can spend a long time between turns. Anyway, I thought it was it was it was fine, but it was just a relatively pedestrian euro optimization uh, euro optimization thing. It was at least better than a lot of the you know point salad games because you did feel genuine constraints on things like money. The money constraint I thought was great because you always felt poor, and that kind of harshness I appreciate. But when the game system itself is just saying yeah, there's no coffee or cake to be had. Good luck. That's not really the kind of constraint I enjoy. So. If things had been a little bit looser there, or if there had been a, a little bit more slack in some of the areas, again, like Voyages of Marco Polo, I probably would have enjoyed it more. So that was Grand Austria Hotel. What did you think of it? I
1: liked it. I think I wish the theme was a little more prevalent, but seemed alright. You open up rooms, people come in. For, it's like the typical, you know, fulfill order type of game. But like you said, it was it was painful when. When the last of the, all the characters all needed a certain commodity and there was just no way we could get it, and it just bogged the game down that much more. The, the, the fact that even the turn order and the fact that you couldn't do anything, it just slogged out the last few turns, seemed a little painful. And that was Grand Austria Hotel. Final game I'd like to talk about
0: is Mechanus Burgo. Mechanis Burgo is a game that probably by all rights I should hate. It's sloppy, it's messy, it's very much too long even for what it is, the iconography is a, is inconsistent and a bit of a mess, so you constantly have to look up in the rulebook to see what, what, a, what a given thing does. But you have to concede that any game that lets you deploy a cyber velociraptor against the space church so as to win the rights to hold a motor combat, it's getting something right.
1: It's so true. And, and this is when you have to decide whether you want to do that or, you know, the, the psychedelic rave or the, you know, the five other crazy things that you can do. And look, in the game that we played, my characters, who consisted
0: of a couple of celebrities, managed to dominate the social scene. And at the same time, uh, Walker was off in the corner building a small coterie of incredibly violent thugs and combat robots. And then... Near the end of the game, he said, Ah, screw it. I don't want to rule the city. I'll just take it over. And he declared himself to be the enemy of everyone and we the other players couldn't get our act together to stop him mainly because we committed some crucial mistakes. Anyway, all of this is to say Mechanis Burgo is basically a worker placement game, but there's a lot <laughs> of other stuff going on. It's got assassinations and hacking and sabotage and all this other stuff. I I have a soft spot for Mechanis Burgo that is probably in excess of its actual merits. But it does do things that I haven't seen other games do very well or even at all, and it's got this lovely sort of cyberpunk 1950s or 60s era sci-fi feel, all with a, all with the lovely veneer of the Spanish language put on top of it. So I, don't, I didn't deliberately set out to play two games with a lot of Spanish in it over the weekend, but that is what ended up happening. And Mechanis, Mechanis Burgo also has... there's never a dull moment in it, at least in terms of seeing what the new turn has to offer you there may be a little bit of a bit of dull moment and someone says wait how does assassination work again and you have to remind them because there's a lot of rules to, to 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 keep track of but unlike a lot of other games that are you know three to four hour worker placement affairs at least Mechanisburgo has character and it's got a lot of novelty to it and a lot of interesting stuff happens so that that that's my sort of tentative pitch for Mechanisburgo. i still enjoy it
1: yeah i i had a lot of fun i didn't feel like i won but Whatever. It was dude, sort of like you a, earned that, dude. It was uh You kicked our asses good. Um, since you pray, I'm just going to... I think the resolution took a little while. Like, once you've placed everything, like, I love that part, how you place your workers out, how you, you know, incorporate your all your minions and your provinces. But then once you start the resolution, that seems to really bog down a lot. And then some of the actions have a huge swing, right? Yes. Because you get to play... You have an action hand of cards that are one through six... And then some of the abilities where you can draw a card off the top of the deck, which is a 0 through 8. Yes. So that could be a huge swing. But other than that, it is very, very interesting and fun little game.
0: The thing you have to internalize with Mechanis Burgo, and it's actually less, in many ways it's less random than it seems. Because yes, the, the the consequence of any individual action may have a huge swing. But the thing is, you have to accept that your, your corporation is going to undergo some churn. Because it looks like a worker placement game, like a lot of other worker placement games, where you go out and you get new workers. And almost any worker placement game where you can do that, that's the dominant strategy. But in Mechanis Burgo you have to accept the fact that you're going to undergo some churn. I was actually in a bit of a problem because nobody had assassinated or seduced away or in any other way. ways incapacitated any of my characters. And as a result, I had nothing to do in the third round. It was actually constraining because there was no point in my getting going and getting new employees. So you have to accept that you're always going to be fluctuated. It's a bit like civilization in that regard. I can't believe I'm comparing Mechanis and civilization. There's such... <laughs> but it's a bit like civilization in the fact that you have to accept the fact that you're going to lose some cities, but they're going to come back. You have to accept that there's a bit of an ebb and flow to these things. And Mechanis Bergo is the same way. I think I need to retire now in shame from having made that analogy, but I'll stand by it. So those are the games we played last week. Now let's move on to the news and
1: why it doesn't matter. What do you have for the news here, Walker? I have one news item, and for some reason I feel we already talked about it, but I'm going to talk about it again because I just saw it, and it's, that's an expansion for Feast for Odin called The Norwegians. It's true. We Well, we didn't talk about it. I talked about it, but you don't listen to what I say. So that's, that's what, what I'm, I'm saying. I, that's yeah. what I assumed, but I just tune out anything you say anyway. So. Sure. Sure. So now you have horses and pigs and all sorts of interesting things you get to add. And a whole new board, whole new buildings. And the amount of people that played Feast for Odin over the weekend and played Great Western Trail, and they all love those games, so I'm looking forward to even more crazy Euro action in the the future.
0: I've got a couple things in terms of upcoming products, and then I'd actually like to move on to news that does matter. So the news that doesn't matter is... Battlecon, which is one of my favorite two-player games. It was the first game I ever kickstarted. They're now coming up with their own one box to hold them all. They're going to be launching this Kickstarter on uh, Friday this week. So I fully anticipate that the box production will become a waking nightmare, and we will see it only in two to three years, much like Oblivion did. The other new product coming up is an expansion for the quest for El Dorado called Heroes and Hexes. And like any deck builder, you obviously want more stuff. This actually isn't going to be adding many new cards, but it's going to be introducing uh, some faction asymmetry from the start and a whole bunch of other stuff. Anyway, I've said before, I think Reiner Canizia is back. He's designing games that I like again, and so I'm very much looking forward to his his new output that's going to be coming out in Essen this year. I would like to move on to news that I think does actually matter. I want to talk about a game called Manitoba. Have you heard about this,
1: Walker? I have heard a little bit about it. Okay, here's the deal.
0: So DLP games, which is the publishing house set up and operated by Reiner Stockhausen, who's the guy who brought us Orléans and Altiplano, among other things, is publishing a game called Manitoba. Here's the problem. Let me stress right from the outset that when it comes to claims of cultural appropriation per se, I don't, I'm not moved by such claims in and of itself. I don't have any necessary problems with it. Here's the thing. In Manitoba, you're nominally representing different groups of Cree. And in this game, you progress along a totem pole path. Like, there's this this, this in- integrated mechanics about building totem poles. The Kree don't build totem poles. They never have. And in all likelihood, they never will. And here's why this is galling, all right? It's galling because totem poles possess deep cultural and religious and spiritual significance for the people that do construct totem poles. And the fact that the publisher is off, is obviously so indifferent to even finding out the first facts about totem poles, we're not talking about deep research here. We're not even talking about a trip to the library. We're not even talking about, oh goodness, cracking open a book. We're talking like the first two paragraphs of Wikipedia here, right? The fact that a publisher, any publisher, anywhere from any country, would seek to use a religious or spiritually significant artifact and practice as dressing in a game and they can't even be bothered to read the first couple paragraphs from wikipedia about a given practice that i think indicates a level of intellectual laziness that i find in the abstract unsustainable and in in the particular i think it shows a certain degree of contempt and that contempt, I think, is what is bothersome. I'm going to try to retire the word offensive because it's often misused, and I don't really care about feelings. I don't care if anyone's offended. I don't care that I'm offended or whether, whether any Cree people are offended or any Haida people are offended. That's, that's not the point. The point isn't about feelings. The point is about contempt for cultures not your own, and that I don't think is acceptable, whether it's in a commercial context or in any other context. And let's be clear here, Let me, because a lot of whataboutism Showed up in a massive 14 page thread on BoardGameGeek about this. And a lot of whataboutism showed up even when the CBC, our national state media, ran a news piece about this and contacted Reiner Stockhausen in interviews. So there's a lot of whataboutisms like, well, you know, games about the mafia. Well, you know, games about my country. Well, you know, the movie Gladiator. I don't care. First of all, some of those may be acceptable, some of them may not be acceptable, but we are not talking about Viking helmets having. Horns on them or something. And I personally don't care, and I don't think it's it's problematic or contemptible if you display the Cree using canoes that they didn't traditionally use. Obviously, there's a line, right? And I think that shape of shape of tint or type of coloring or anything like that is on one side of the line. And I think that using someone's religious practices as window dressing, when you obviously don't care, that's on the other side of the line. That is the standard that I am articulating here. And it's clear, just just for context, that the contempt and indifference that the publisher had for, for the theming here went far beyond that, when on the back of the box they talk about Manitoba's, and I quote, majestic mountains, end quote, which further shows that... See, I finally got Walker on my side. The rest of the time, he was looking very (laughs) skeptical, but now I think he finally understands where I'm coming from. Anybody who knows anything about Manitoba at all, and it's the name of the game, knows that there are no mountains in Manitoba. The highest elevation and the lowest elevation are separated by roughly the length of my forefinger. And some of you might be saying, oh, but Eurogames don't care. Then, if Eurogames don't care, I would say two things. Number one... Don't start messing with people's cultural traditions. Make it about something else. If it doesn't matter, then don't start messing with other cultures' traditions. And I could start talking about colonialism, but I don't have to. I think I. I, I think you don't even have to start bringing in things like cultural appropriation or colonialism to talk about how this is a problematic practice. I don't think you have to. The second thing I would say to the claim about, oh, it's a Euro game, things don't care, I would point to the works of Cole Whirl, of Martin Wallace, of Uwe Rosenberg, some of the works of Reiner Knizia, Matt Gertz. These are Euro designers who design Euro games very often, and they do copious research, and their games are better for it. They they feel more grounded, the thematic consistency is often greater, they often come with lovely little unnecessary but beautiful value-added almanacs talking about the historical context of what's going on. These are people who take their work seriously, and that's what I'm talking about here. It is professionally contemptuous to put out a product like this, and I think that they deserve to be ashamed of that if nothing else. So that's what I have to say about Manitoba as a board game critic, not necessarily a cultural critic or an ethnic studies critic. And I really do think that all the whataboutism and all the it doesn't matter is really missing the point. And I think you're really burying the lead if you start
1: talking about like, oh, well, you know, the Vikings with the horned helmets, not the same, not analogous. How How about Pillars of the Earth? Isn't that the one where they use a cathedral? You build a cathedral as a timing mechanism? Sure. But the culture in question built cathedrals. If Pillars of the Earth had you
0: building a mosque this in is, yeah, in no. medieval in medieval England or in uh medieval central France. The the analogy one of the analogies that, that was raised in, in Board Game Geek, I thought was quite good. It's like this would be like the Bavarians building Stonehenge. Yeah, right. right
1: that's the one I was gonna bring up too. I thought that was hilarious.
0: Like Uh, Even setting aside the fact that Stonehenge represents a religious tradition that is mostly dead, when we're talking about active religious and spiritual traditions that are currently being practiced, I don't think you have to be practicing a certain spiritual or religious tradition to recognize that you should, if you are going to deal with it in your work of fiction or in your commercial product do your due diligence and we can all have reasonable disagreements about what due diligence constitutes, I'm going to establish that a minimum baseline for decency is read the Wikipedia entry. That is the minimum standard of decency that I'm going to articulate. That works for and apparently,
1: when they, you know, yeah.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. We made fun of them when they pulled the Kotahi mess, right? Yeah. And I think that they deserve to be ashamed for their sloppy level of research for that product. And that was a marginal Kickstarter exclusive one monster in a pantheon of things they were just clearly adding adding later on. This is the core conceit of the game. It's not even just the trappings of the cover art, which apparently the cover art, you know, commits like a billion other fundamental cultural mistakes. But we're talking about the core conceit of the game about a religious tradition that does not apply to the people in question and this is also for, for for broader reference and i think you should do some reading on this this is broader uh, this is part of a broader tradition of a strange fascination on the part of some people from germany about first nations people in canada the united states which has a whole bunch of other problematic stuff but honestly as a board gamer i'm i'm seriously If nothing else, set aside my feelings as a human being or whatever other political views I have. As a board gamer, I am ashamed that a man like Reiner Stockhausen, uh, who has a, a legitimate profile in our hobby, can get away with crap like this. Or thinks he can get away with crap like this and this level of carelessness and sloppiness and intellectual laziness. And that's the minimum of what I think one can say in this particular case. Do you think I've overstepped, Walker?
1: Not at all. All right, then.
0: I've said my piece. I think it's an important issue that deserves more serious discussion, but I think that this is not the venue for the more serious discussion, and I don't think Walker would have the stomach for the more serious discussion anyway, so we're going to stick to what we can agree on, and that's what we're going to agree on, so that's what I have to say about Manitoba. On to our feature game. Our feature game this week is Too Many Bones, specifically Too Many Bones Undertow, which is the newest standalone expansion in the Too Many Bones product line. Which, is now, uh, which now consists of two base games and, and a, a relatively decent number of possible add-ons. Just for a little bit of context, this was put out by Adam Carlson and Josh Carlson of Chip Theory Games. The, base game, the first base game of Too Many Bones was released last year. It was, in fact, on my uh, top 10 of 2017. And they got their start as a company by publishing Hoplomachus, which is a very, very light, uh, dice-chucking, gladiatorial combat thing. And the company is known for their peculiar approach to components. And I say peculiar both in a good and a bad way. They firmly believe that uh, they want to use heavyweight, professional-grade poker chips as their are in, in place of counters. They like using... Uh, custom dice and lots of it, although to varying degrees, and they also don't believe in boards, they believe in neoprene mats, and basically one gets the impression that in an ideal world, they would put out all products that contain no cardboard aside from the box, and to a certain extent, they've succeeded, because in the case of Too Many Bones, all the cards, of which there are many, are made out of PVC. The entire game is waterproof, and indeed they have videos of them playing it underwater. Uh, and that's the sort of context for the product lines they put out. Uh, most recently, what they put out after Too Many Bones Undertow was a, a game called Triplock, which was, which is a very, very simple solo or or competitive uh, puzzle memory type game. didn't really appeal to me, so I haven't tried it. And they're going to be coming out with new stuff in the future, and so that's the sort of broader company context of what Chip Theory Games has been doing. Why don't you, uh, Walker, give your, your traditional patented description of what one does in Too Many Bones?
1: Well, in Too Many Bones, it's the traditional sort of dungeon delving little gear locks on a quest cool little gnomish type goblin type halfling type creatures and there's about seven different types you can choose from and in the usual dungeon delving way much like descent and imperial assault every single character has a path that you can go down that changes the character up. In different ways, and most of the gear locks in too many bones have three different paths, and it's usually not a fantastic idea to you know diversify in all of them. It's usually the best way is to you know emphasize one and check it out, or you know think of what the boss is and do what's best that way. So decide which path to go down, figure out the best way to to gain and spend those sweet sweet training points. That's going to get you more dice, and and figure out really how your gear lock works and. Have fun playing.
0: So, it's another entry in the thankfully very crowded co op fantasy tactical combat game. Basically, the market, and we've commented on this before, the market has been moving away from things like Talisman, like Prophecy, like other wandering around overland games where combat is resolved with D6 and say, well, why don't we reduce the wandering to something very, very, very simple and abstracted and make the combat a little bit more fleshed out? And for someone who's fundamentally still a a tabletop minis gamer at heart in many ways, this is very much the approach that that I like, especially because the overland travel of a lot of adventure games like that is not particularly engaging or compelling. Overland travel can be done well, like the Quest for El Dorado. I like that game, but it's not trying to be this kind of game. So let's talk about that asymmetry that you were talking about. There are ten characters available now, four in the base game of Too Many Bones, two more in Undertow, and then the remaining four are add-ons that you can buy separately. And honestly, of all the add-ons, the characters... Very much I've said before are the things that I recommend the most. the asymmetry here is so huge that it actually reminds me teaching a bit like root in that you start with the core game elements and there's more there's more in common amongst across the different gearlocks than there is in something like root, but then you have to spend a little bit of time explaining to each player how their character works and this goes all the way from a simpler character like Pickett who doesn 't really have much by way of weirdness most of it is re- reasonably straightforward all the way to something like Tink which I've had to explain to many people, because Tink builds and runs robots, and everyone wants to do that, because that's obviously awesome, but everything is very, very, very in-depth and kind of unique to his character. This costs decks. This doesn't cost deck. This is when this happens. This gets deployed. This thing, this die works this way, but this die works this other way because it's rainy on a Tuesday, etc., etc. And this is, you know, honestly, like every other game of this type, both a strength and a weakness. It's a strength because you get these radically different experiences playing these different characters, but it can get a little bit tedious explaining to somebody if they don't know the game backwards and forwards. If somebody already knows the core rules and is able to internalize what's on the back of the sheet, then all's well and good for the most part even though the rules sometimes aren't particularly clearly worded. But as somebody who really likes strongly asymmetric experiences, I do think
1: that that is one of the best elements of Too Many Bones. Yeah, I have the exact same sentence on here. Much like Root and or Vast, that every character plays their own sort of game. The way that they've incorporated these dice to work in such different ways is really fun to watch. And interesting. Everyone, you know, I mean, everyone is fun. It's not as though, you know, in Vast where, you know, the cave was completely boring and whatever. But every single character is is fun to play.
0: It also helps that it's co-op, right? Because then you naturally have to find ways to interact with the other player to compensate for their weaknesses and be able to do things that they can't do. And And each
1: character comes with this huge, like you said, this huge sheet that you can follow along and, and look ahead and shows you all the dice facing so you can sort of, you know, hopefully figure out what to do.
0: Yeah, it's a, bit, it's a bit daunting, because you see all these custom dice, you see this wall of text explaining how the character works uniquely, and one of the ways in which Too Many Bones, I think, makes things more complicated than it needs to be, or at least more daunting than it needs to be, is that sometimes a skill only makes sense when you pay attention to a single letter next to the skill description. The difference between a skill being an active skill versus a locked skill. uh, An instant skill versus a counter skill. These minor differences that are so easy to gloss over, even for an experienced player, that might make all the difference and turn a die from borderline useless into amazing. And some of the information presentation is not as good as it could be. It's been getting better. I remember back in the first printing of the base game of Too Many Bones, the reference sheets didn't even include the die faces on them. They just had a vague thematic description of what it was. So then what you had to do was you had to get this reference sheet, pick out the die from your tray, look at all the faces, look at an icon on the die, and then cross-reference it back to the sheet to figure out what that icon did. It was a pain. But say what you want about Chip Theory Games, and I will very shortly. So don't worry. Fans of Chip Theory Games, you can sharpen your pitchforks for now because I'm defending them here now. They've been extremely good at making sure that every owner of the game can get the newest stuff with a minimum of expense and hassle. They've been incredibly heroic in that regard. And I give them I give them full credit for
1: that. So I just want to talk quickly about how the actual game works. It's if you've played Gloomhaven, then you sort of know how it sort of works. These are like the city cards. You're instead of having like this long grueling map that you have it to move across, you have this you set up this campaign deck where you just flip through the deck and when you get to the bottom that's that's the boss. And every time you flip up a card, it gives you a little scenario and you have two options and they're going to give you different rewards or or whatever it is. And that and that's, leads to another point I was going to make later is the fact that you can either do a short game or a long game. Because a lot of the options on these cards are just to run away or to exit or just to do one that doesn't cause a battle. So if you don't feel like doing a super long game, you can sort of streamline your way and get to the end or you can fight out each battle. And then once you've decided to do the battle and you just take out this little neoprene mat, you set up your guys and it's this little, you know, skirmish type game. And it's very interesting and fun. So the, the deck of encounters, I think, has really
0: been growing by leaps and bounds. The variety in the core game was impressive in terms of the kind of encounters they do. Sometimes you get surprised with these charming little mini games. There was actually, I don't want to spoil too much, but without going into too much detail, there's a dexterity challenge in some of the encounter cards of the base game. And I love weird little nonsense like that, especially in the co-op game where you don't have to worry about balance too, too much. Ways to modify the fight, some of the modifications are simple, some of them are a little bit more in-depth, some of them change the way you approach how your character operates, some of them are a little unfair, some of them might completely kneecap one character while not affecting another character, but again, you're there for the variety, to a certain extent you're there for the ride, and the fact that the balance isn't isn't perfectly fine-tuned is kind of okay when you are presented with interesting scenarios. And, with the expansion in Undertow, I really feel like they've dialed that up to 11. I was actually going to complain about the sense of humor in the game. In that it's often a bunch of kind of cheesy puns, but I have to say they've up to their pun game in Undertow. I think to a certain extent, I was immediately charmed when in the first game of Undertow I played, there was a Clash reference, and it was about whether on the raft should I stay or should I row. And then after that, immediately, and I was like, oh, okay, well that's kind of cute. And then immediately thereafter, I drew a loot card. That made reference to Guns N' Roses. And that point I was okay, fine, you've won me over. I was originally not totally sold on your sense of humor, but the new stuff I is just lame in just the perfect right way. It's it's just it 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 uh, it's obviously it's a very personal thing, but it's very much to my taste. You're back on board.
1: Yeah. Oh dear lord. And that kind of leads And it's low upkeep. Like when you play all these other campaign type games and all these other dungeon deliveries, you have all of these cards, all of these things to keep track of your character, all these different things. In this, all you have is your dice tray and your mat, and you don't have to go off on, you know, all these different tangents and look all these other things up. Everything is right in front of you. So huge low upkeep to keep the game going. That part I really like. I agree with you that setup is
0: fine. It's, you, you have to separate chips out into different categories and then shuffle them together and things, but that's okay. Keeping track of your character and all their stats is great because it's all on this neoprene mat with these lovely little square holes to, that hold the dice just snugly enough but not too snugly. Proceeding along the campaign deck is just, as you say, going down a stack of cards and, and reading what they are, so that's great. The one thing, though, that I do find somewhat tiresome, and this relates to the issue of length that you talked about, is that you spend a lot of time manipulating chips, just setting them up on the mat. And sometimes setting up the fight takes longer than the fight itself. And sometimes in a given game, you're going to be fighting six, seven, eight, nine, ten times in a row. And it's just a question of, okay, setting up this guy and then setting up this guy. Oh, this guy died. Okay, I get to set up a new monster. And individually, it's trivial individually it's you just take the monster you put the identifying chip under it you get the uh, chips for hit points you figure out where it needs to start you set the die for initiative right i'm not going to complain about that but when you have to you might have to do that six times for a given fight and you might be having fight after fight after fight after fight that part of the upkeep i do find
1: a little bit tiresome yeah and then there's Sort of the math equation, right, where you have to set up the bad EQ and there's, it has the total, and you have to manipulate it slightly. But I think, I think they realized it was a problem as well. But it was a concession they had to make to make it sort of generic for all of the scenarios, right? It's like, this is, to p- no, no matter what enemies, whatever whatever enemy set you use, here is the number equation we're going to use, and that way it'll flow through the whole game type thing, and we're not saying, okay, now grab these guys and put them on the map, and then therefore, every time you do this scenario, you have to fight the same guys over and over again. So I think it's just a, 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 a complication they decided that they had to go with. I agree, and
0: it's one worth making, especially since it handles player scaling reasonably well. It's not perfect, but it's 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 reasonably smooth, and so although I find it very i by the end of the game, I do find it tiresome by the end of the game, I wish i, I didn't have to manipulate chips anymore honestly, and this is not because they're chips if they were tokens, it would be just as 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 tedious and i I'm going to have to disagree with you a little bit about something you said earlier about the game length. you don't have that much control over the game length after all because it's, and this is, this is a consequence to a certain extent of the strength of the game in terms of the variety of the encounters it have, has. Some of the encounters you have are not combat encounters. Some of them involve choices and some of them are very cute, but not all of them are combat encounters. So you have all the range from a short game with uh, a boss that doesn't take much time to encounter, because that's basically the clock of the game. You try to go find the boss and kill it. And that, maybe half the cards you pull aren't combat encounters, so that game will be very, very quick, especially if you're playing solo. I've played solo games of too many bones that last about a half hour, and honestly, those are great. That, you know, flies by. All the way to, once you start adding more players, that increases the length considerably, and increases the number of chips you've got to manipulate, and the number of times you've got to set up, and the amount of setup to be done. And if you play a, a longer boss, and if all of them are combat encounters, we're talking about three to four hours easily. The length on the box says 90 to 120 minutes, and that I find inaccurate in both directions. I mean, a solo game is not going to last you 90 minutes, even the longer ones, very often. Sometimes it might happen. And, you know, a three- or four-player game, you're not getting that done in two hours. No way. Not a chance.
1: And then there's all the side scenarios that you might have to encounter. That's what I was sort of... leaning towards was the fact that they give you these options to branch off on these side scenarios that have these interesting stories, and then you can just choose to ignore those and beeline it right to the boss. Absolutely. Just in the same way that you don't have to go fight the boss as soon as you're able. You can decide to keep keep pressing your luck and, and leveling up to try to do that if you want. I do want to talk about leveling up. Sure, because that is a huge part of the game is deciding where to spend these training points. Absolutely, they've done it's like other games that we enjoy where they make every choice as important as every other choice. Or you know I mean, you don't know where to put your training points. They have this deck system where it's sort of like how many actions you're going to be able to do. It costs decks to move, and then after you're done moving, whatever decks you have left, that's how many dice you're going to roll. And then you decide if you're going to use some of your cool skill dice that you've picked out, or just generic attack dice or defense dice so you can defend yourself when you're attacked. And then, then, like I said, so when you get the skill points... Or the training points, I should say. You have to decide, are you going to raise your decks? Or are you going to raise your attack dice that you're allowed to roll? Or are you going to get some of these new skills? And almost every every part of these things is more important than the others, you know what I mean? So it's very hard to decide, you know, what to pick. And when you have that kind of, you know, difficulty, that's the best part about games, I think. It's very fun. It's very cool. It's the heart of the
0: asymmetry, but I have a couple of quibbles. One of them is, it seems most of the time, boosting your attack to astronomical levels... Seems stronger than a lot of the other cool skills, which is problematic primarily because the cool skills are what make you unique. The cool skills are neat, that's where the custom dice are. And it feels boring to plow a training point into just raising a numerical stat by one point instead of unlocking your bone saw or the new song that your bard can sing or making your wolf more badass or something like that. And I I do dislike it when a game puts the cool thing at odds with the smart thing, but I'm willing to do it in the case of too many bones just because, you know, it is awfully cool. So I'm not a huge fan of that. It does seem to be sort of the dominant strategy to just boost
1: your attack stat to ungodly levels, especially if you're melee. But you could throw it into that. Into that choice of path, right? That could be one time that you're just going to go to a super high attack path. And then then that worked. So next time, you try something different. That's true. And that leads to my second point,
0: actually. Uh, Of the people I played too many Bones with, I played too many Bones with, I think, about half a dozen different people. And generally speaking, when people play the same character twice, they level them up the same way. And I'm not sure if this is a fault of the game or a fault of the players. You're pretty much the only player I've seen, and this is only the last time you played. So you've, you, you and I have played about half a dozen times together. And most of the time, you're the one who pursues the attacks, uh, boosting the, the the attack stat. You're one of the people who, after the first time you did it, opened my eyes to the fact that this was this was really a strong way to go. Uh, and you're you're one of the only people I've noticed who kind of mixes it up if you're trying the same character uh, over again. I don't do it, but then again, I'm boring and, and I lack imagination. And so I wonder if that is just because players get stuck in their ways or if it really is the case that when presented with a set of options, one does seem to be quote-unquote most obvious. The most glaring example of this, honestly, is Pickett. Pickett is probably my favorite character just because he he, he suits my style of play, which is to say straightforward and boring. And every person who's played Pickett has always leveled Pickett up the exact same way. And done very well with him. And so I wonder sometimes if the perceived variety of character builds is just an illusion. And in point of fact, there's really only one or two ways
1: to do it, quote unquote, optimally. That could be. I, I have not played it enough. That's for sure. But I can see us playing it a lot more in the future. But I guess that's the thing we'll have to look at. So let's go with the production value. Let's. So, you know, when you have sleeves and all your cards... And your deck gets I too... Don't, I don't know that. I know, but some of our <laughs> listeners might know this problem. When you have a sleeve deck and it gets too high, and you try to grab it and and it shoots across the table. That sounds like a terrible problem. Well, I don't think anyone should do that. Multiply that by 100 when yeah. you have these PVC cards. They're like these super slippery plastic cards that if you just touch them, they slide across the table. And when you grab them, you have to use two hands because you're going to risk firing them across and hurting someone. But other than that, I guess sort of like them. Like you said, there's nothing you can do to hurt them. You can totally play underwater. There's The game will last forever. And I'm willing to overlook, you know, these small problems with... Although the clarity on some of the cards is... Does get diminished due to this this method they've used?
0: Yeah. So let's talk about the components. And I feel somewhat churlish issuing these complaints because, again, as a company, they stand behind their product one hundred ten percent. They've they have a, they've been tremendously supportive when new additions are coming out, of shipping out large quantities of things at cost or below cost to make sure that everyone is as happy as possible with their purchase. But uh, the chips are unnecessary they could have easily been replaced with tokens and indeed a game that is in some ways very similar assault on doomrock gets by just fine using only tokens and there's no fancy plastic or clay chip stuff involved and i find it almost as tactilely satisfying to move around a stack of tokens as i do a stack of chips i don't know maybe there's there's some some haptic feedback about sliding chips around neoprene that i'm that i'm missing it's kind of neat but i don't think they needed to go to that bother the other thing about the cards is the cards are actually less functional because they are PVC. They've had serious printing printing problems where some of the text was borderline illegible. They've had to send out replacement decks of cards over and over again because of that. And yeah, they're harder to handle. They slip. Uh, the first day that I picked up the game and I tried to take the deck out the car... Uh, the deck out the box when I was just inventorying it briefly uh, next to my car, the entire deck flew out, and I was picking too many bones cards uh, cards out of my car seat for weeks afterwards. It's it's ridiculous, and I have to assume that what happened was, and this may be unfair, and if this is false, please correct me. I have to assume that what happened was they've decided at Chip Theory Games that everything has to be deluxe, and for them, deluxe is the most expensive available option, and. So the actual consequence of this is that the consumer ends up paying a lot of money for all this stuff. If they'd replaced the cards with normal cards, if they'd replaced the the, the chips with tokens, I don't know that there would have been substantial cost savings to the consumer, but there would have been cost savings to the consumer. And we, we would have had functional gains as a result of this. It reminds me of that scene from Misery where, and I don't mean to compare Kathy Bates to the people at Chip Theory Games again, but <laughs> but Kathy Bates comes home with the most expensive paper imaginable. Because she assumes that has to be the best, and then the author explains to her. Well, look, this isn't for typewriters. We can't. I can't use this paper in a typewriter because it smudges. It's designed for something else. She's like, but it's the most expensive, so it has to be the best. And I encounter this attitude all the time. And I really do think that something like that has taken hold of chip theory games. I wish that they were normal cards. I. I. I and I kind of wish that it was more affordable, so that they replaced the chips with tokens. The dice whatever. There needs to be a lot of dice in this game, and I don't fault them for, for, for that. So by all means, go crazy with that. But I I do think that their attitude towards components is a little weird sometimes. So I really enjoy Too Many Bones. Sometimes I wish it were a little bit shorter, sometimes I wish the upkeep were a little bit less. But there are genuine moments of surprise, some moments of humor, and tooling around with the different characters is genuinely fun. So if you do like co-op tactical fantasy combat games and you're able to try someone else's copy because it's a very expensive game, then I'd say give it a shot. Undertow is a marvelous product. I really do think that the way that they've been opening up their encounter card variety, and I think their writing has been getting better, and the variety of, of stuff, even in the the smaller standalone expansion, Too Many Bones Undertow is great. The only downside, though, and the only reason why I can't recommend Too Many Bones Undertow unequ- unequivocally, is that it only comes with two characters. And some of the real joy in the game is tooling around with the characters. So at the, at the end of the day, there's not really a great entry point for the series. The base game is really expensive, and and Undertow is better in a lot of other ways but it only has two characters so buyer beware and be careful about how you spend your money but I really do think that Chip Theory Games is on to something with this I haven't liked that other games uh, at all really I thought that Hoplopagus was uh, you know an excuse to pull out neoprene and chips but Too Many Bones has been uh, consistently entertaining even though sometimes I wish it were a little bit a little bit less upkeep and a little bit less shuffling things around
1: and I, I think it's doing well so I'm very interested to see where they go after this I'm sure that, you know, they, much like other companies do, they streamline it, they change it, they do a different, you know, slide it over to a wholly different genre, a different theme. So I'm looking forward to seeing what comes from them next. And that is Too Many Bones,
0: specifically Too Many Bones Undertow. So our topic this week is difficulty in co-ops. How hard should co-ops be? Walker, I think a good starting point for this discussion is for you to, to repeat to us again, I think you've mentioned it before on the podcast, what it is you say about your desired win
1: rate in co-ops. 10%. Why th- is that? Cuz I just think it should be hard and I, I think it leads to to replay at least for me replayability like if I win all the time I'm I'm really not you know, that eager to play the game. If all I'm going to do is take it all out, set it all up and look, I have won again, (laughs) you know what I mean? And, 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 you know, that last moment, that pulling it out of the brink at the very end, that last turn struggling, trying different methods, you know, like saying, okay, let's try You know, that didn't work. Let's quickly set it up and let's try this, you know, totally different, you know, scrap everything we tried last time and, you know, hit it from a totally different direction. I think that's what makes these really tough co-ops fun. I want to do a generic co-op thing, and that's the fact that the only weapon... That's what I say to everyone when we talk about co-ops. The only weapon co-ops have is randomness, all right? That they're going to pull off these random cards because no one's running the, the other side. So it's going to be these random decks, these random dice. Random things are going to happen, and sometimes you get hit really hard by randomness. But we're going to talk about games that do it properly, And there's another type of co-op, which is the one and done. Like we've seen it in Exit Games, in uh, Unlock, and that's why... You're still not saying it right. Unlock! Thank you. They work because the randomness is taken out because, you know, you don't need to go back again. You know, you do it one time and it's over with. And that's why they work that much better because you don't need the randomness anymore because you only get to play it once. So like you said, let's talk about games that do it properly. Why, how do they you know, make this randomness not so bad? What do I have here? Mixing rewards and trials in the same deck. Now we've encountered this with uh, Who Goes There, where they have uh, things that will help you and things that will hurt you in the same deck. Zombicide does this as well, and Pathfinder, the card game, does this as well. Whereas games that do it better have different decks where you know this is when something bads, you just just draw from this deck it's all bad things so you're not going to get messed up where and and you did well so here's your reward deck you draw from that it's going to be something randomly that you get that's always good
0: yeah the only time i think when mixing the rewards and the penalties together in the same deck is when it's just a part of the game clock, and the example that comes to mind is Pandemic. I don't mind that the Epidemics are mixed in with the player deck, because it's just a thing you do at the end of your turn. I really didn't like having to go to search through a deck in who goes there or games of that ilk because you really do have to. That's how the game advances. And it could be anything from here's this amazing thing to, oh, I'm going to punch you in the face. That was not the kind of variance that I thought was particularly good. And I also don't think that it leads to a consistent difficulty
1: curve. It just, it, it was too variable in a way that was unsatisfying to me. The next thing I have here is power ramp up. And that means like as you progress in the game, it gets more and more difficult and how Other games do it. So there's games like... uh, Why didn't I put that game in there? The game that I hate. Uh, Eldritch Horror, which doesn't even have this. It just... You know, you're always drawing monsters from the the same queue. And there's no ramp up. It's just your characters get more powerful. And the first turn, you might draw this crazy demon that there's no way you can beat. And near the end of the game, when you're so powerful, you're going to draw, you know, the little skittering thing that you're wasting your whole turn trying to deal with. So the power ramp up options to do a lower level games like uh, kingdom death monster when you go out on a mission you get to sort of scale it the way you think your party can handle it right it's not an automatic ramp up right so you can sort of do it and spirit island is the same you get to set the difficulty at the beginning of the game and there's all sorts of other games like that i couldn't come up with any maybe you'll come up with some that that you get to Mage Knight sort of does it as you reveal more of the map. You don't have to go out to those areas. You can, you know, clear up the end bits because you know you're not powerful enough yet. The other characters have got, you know, better breaks. So games that give you options to do lower level stuff, stuff like that. So I've been
0: thinking about this a lot lately and I've been thinking it in the context as well of games that want to provide a narrative because just in the same way that you've been thinking more and more that for you a good game provides good flow, I've been thinking that for me a good game provides a good arc. That things build to an appropriate tempo, that you're not doing the same thing over and over and over again, that there's at least fluidity, if not actually uh, a solid beginning, middle, and an end. I talked about that in the context of El Grande. And I think that to a certain extent, one of the reasons why I find co-ops a co-op loss unsatisfying is the same reason why I find a lot of narratives in games unsatisfying. And that is that good narratives for me are often about failure. The stories, some of the stories that I really like often involve salient elements of people failing. But in board games, failure is very difficult to render interestingly. Usually it's, usually it's rendered as something not achieving a, an, an effect, just not working. So as a result, you either spend resources or your time or an action or what have you doing nothing, which is not fun. And it doesn't lead to that kind of interesting narrative. I'm talking specific Video games work the same way, too. A lot of uh, my favorite video games have been stories about failure, which kind of undercuts the whole sort of, uh, you know, God-complex wish fulfillment that a lot of video games are about. I'm thinking about games like, uh, you know, not that we want to talk too much about video games, but, you know, Dragon Age 2 or... Spec Ops: The Line, or things like even The Walking Dead season one. You know, games about where the main characters just fail, and you know, no spoilers. But uh, and so game, co-op games, when you lose, they don't really provide a conclusion; they just end. But then again, they often don't really provide a conclusion; they just end when you succeed as well. And too many bones for all its strengths. Sometimes its ends are very anticlimactic too, because the goal of the game is to kill the boss, and sometimes killing the boss is either trivial, or just as a result of an opportunistic fluke, or something like that. And those aren't often very satisfying ends, and when you lose too many bones, it's because you just run out of time, which again, not particularly satisfying. So, the the best that I think you can do, and I've been thinking about this, in order to build to a crescendo of, of, to give you some sort of sense of an arc, is the way that Street Masters does it, the way that Gloomhaven does it, the way that Spirit Island does it. You ramp up in power, so that the threats that you were facing at the beginning, you were barely holding on. Or indeed, sometimes they were just wiping the floor with you. But you eventually get strong enough, and you grapple with the resources that you have available, or you ramp up in power, so that you were encouraged to be able to blow everything out near the end of the game in an orgiastic frenzy of, in those cases, destruction, because all those games are about destruction. Gloomhaven does this with the way that you can... lose a card permanently by triggering a stronger effect. Street Masters does this because you can pull off things called feints, and you have to build up your tactics to get there. Uh, Spirit Island does this because you just become incredibly powerful near the end of the game, and you feel like the sort of primeval nature spirit that you represent. And those, I think, are the closest proxy for how you can get a good arc out of uh, a co-op game rather than just a never-ending stream of nonsense. So, but let me, let, me, let me bring this back to difficulty then, and I want to talk a little bit about Spirit Island, because Spirit Island, most of the time, is way too easy. At level zero difficulty, or even level you know two or three, especially if anyone at the table knows what they 're doing in my experience it 's very, very, very difficult to lose i in fairness i 've read some comments from people talking about how spirit island even at the the, the base level difficulty is way too hard they don 't see how they can win i don 't know what they 're doing i 'm not saying that i'm i 'm so much better a spirit island player than you are indeed, the designer uh, Eric Royce commented that he wanted around a ninety percent win rate for for difficulty level zero. I don't know why. It's not a strength of the game. The only reason why it works in the context of a game like Spirit Island is because the levers are so intricate that you can forget the fact that you're basically in a cakewalk. Also because of this thing that I talked about in the arc. Because at the beginning of the game, the invaders move so quickly that if you haven't played before, or even if you played once or twice, you can't even begin to imagine how you could keep up, much less overtake them. But then by the end of the game, you're crushing them absolutely massacring them. And it's just an incredible red tie that they can't they can't stand in the way of. Which is to say, all this is to say, that most of the games that I appreciate in term in terms of co-op tend to be too easy but hide it well. Because again, I've yet to encounter a co-op where failure was really interesting and led you to an interesting result other than just you're done now because you didn't do what you needed to do and you've run out of time. If anyone out there listening you can think of a, of a co-op with a really, really good end game when you lose. By all means, please point it out to me because that, that is something I would really like to experience.
1: Uh, that fits into this the other category I have written here. It's too long to lose versus too short to care. Yeah, right. Where a game is so long that maybe the designers, you know, don't. You know, I mean it, it would be such a disappointment to after a three-hour game to you know like lose to something foolish, and then you have games like the Grizzled which they're so short, it doesn't matter. You just, okay, well, we lost that one, start again, go again. You know, you just go over and over again. So, like, you can make it infinitely hard because it's so quick that you can do, you know, you can do about six games and try to get through one of them. So most of the
0: co-ops that I know you like fall well short of the 10%, well, not well short, but they fall well short of the 90% loss rate that you say that you want. Level 7 Invasion, you seem to agree with me that it was probably too easy. Uh, Sentinels of the Multiverse does have some harder scenarios, but I don't think that the particularly hard ones are especially fun. They tend to just constrain you and get rid of all your toys, and that's not particularly enjoyable. We've commented before that Sentinels can just be wacky sometimes. So what are some some really hard co-op games that, that you think do difficulty well?
1: Robinson Crusoe. I really think they do really hard difficulty well. Ghost Stories, yes. very difficult game. I think they do it well. That's on my list too. Ghost Stories, I think, is a
0: great example of a really hard game where you can get better. And not in a way, not even in a way it's like, oh, I've seen the deck, I know what's in the deck. Because that's, that's a level of, of improvement that's fine. But it's much better to be like, okay, I now understand how to tactically take advantage of the situation better now. I have a genuine experience about how to be a better player.
1: And so I think Ghost Stories is, is a great example of a really hard game that you can get better at. Yeah, that's the other title I have here, is finding the right combo. And that is sort of prevalent in Sentinels as well, where you when you ramp it up to a harder boss like uh, Dark Legacy or, or you go into advanced mode, it's finding the right combination of characters to take on that boss or the right equipment, depending on what game you're playing. You know, Bringing the right equipment, bringing the right characters in doing the right thing finding the different combos in order to overcome why you're losing all the time
0: yeah but sometimes that can be done well and sometimes that can be done badly for sure In, in the case again in the case of ghost stories making your different Taoists synergize properly is a really interesting tactical puzzle, and that's one of the skills that you need to bring to bear, and that kind of combo is great. The kind of combos that sometimes you discover in Sentinels of the Multiverse are desperately unsatisfying. Like, the exploit that I talked about where Tempest. Like, okay, yeah. knock Tempest out right away, become immune to a type of damage, that's it, we're done, we win. That it, it, just, It's not as satisfying, it feels like... It feels true, like just but a not tr- all
1: the Sentinels combos are like that. That it's is true. definitely You're one right. that's bad, but there are
0: some that are good, too. You're right. The other games that I have here that are really hard, but... You can get genuinely better at them. Are Hanabi? Hanabi, I think, is a wonderful co-op game where it is a genuine skill. Most of the people I've commented, I've seen who comment that Hanabi is too easy and they win all the time. And by win, I mean get to twenty-five points. Because Hanabi, you don't really there there are ways you can lose, which doesn't happen very often. But usually, it's just a question of getting making your score better up to twenty-five. Uh, the overwhelming majority of the time when someone talks about ho- how easy Hanabi is and you start interrogating them, it's clear that they're cheating rampantly. They just ignore all the communication restrictions or they've sat together and they've developed their own communication shorthand, which I consider cheating at Hanabi. Uh, but, you know, I, I, there is a – but But Hanabi, it, 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 there's a genuine skill at getting better and getting better heuristics and, and, and finding out how to make better inferences and better clues. Assault on Doomrock is the same way. I have yet to win a game of Assault on Doomrock, legit. I've played over a dozen times, but I've never won. So here we're talking about less than less than a 10% win rate. I could just be really bad at Assault on Doomrock, but most other people talk about how hard it is too. And But nonetheless, I feel like I'm getting better. I, I feel like I, I, I know a little bit more every time I, I play and lose, and maybe someday I'll win, uh, and that'll be a, a very exciting moment. But So I agree with you. If a, if, a, if a co-op game is good enough such that, A, the systems allow you to get better, in a way that feels satisfying rather than rather than encouraging you to find exploits and b is really really challenging that is often the sweet spot i just often find that that sometimes the systems
1: are challenging just because it's a random deluge or or anything like that oh well, i often find too that because I think I'm not sure if it's computer games. That's this, this. another analogy I come up with when I play with people that get very frustrated when they're losing. I'm wondering if it's because uh, people are playing a lot of video games where mm. when you don't succeed, boom, you reset, you go again. You know what I mean? So, And the expectation to succeed every time is there. So when they play these games, their, their expectation is to succeed or, or there's always a way to win. And it's like no, we, you know, we've made these mistakes. You know, there's nothing we can do. We're done, and and so I'm wondering if that's some of the things that are the problem.
0: Right. Yeah, I agree. That's why some of my favorite video games have been narratives about failure, or the kind of game where you're not expected to succeed, like your roguelikes, like your uh, competitive fighting games, like your incredibly difficult shmups. Those are those are games where you're expected to get your your rear end handed to you over and over and over again, but then eventually claw some sort of, of skill back. And I don't really find, and let me be clear, I think you and I are a little bit different in that I'm not looking for a particular level of difficulty. I'm just looking for the difficulty to be managed in a certain way. If the win rate is is close to 100%, but I nonetheless feel like I'm making progress and getting a better sense of how the game works, and I feel that the game systems are deep enough that they reward further exploration, I'm kind of okay with that. I, I'm not a huge fan of games that are too easy, but... By the same token, I'm not a fan of the way lots of co-ops manage difficulty. Like, they just start upping numbers, for example. Or they just start throwing in more bad stuff at a, at, at a higher rate. I'm more interested in the, the, the slightly nuanced ways that you can manage difficulty. Uh, and again, I think Spirit Island does a great job of that. The way that Spirit Island increases difficulty... And changes things up with the different adversaries and scenarios. I think is really, really a good way to do it. And indeed, that's one of the reasons why playing with experienced Spirit Island players is so great, because everyone at the table knows how easy the game is on base difficulty, and you you, you typically have no problem convincing them that you need to ramp things up as high as they could possibly go.
1: So, when I was thinking about this, I've come up with this theory. I want to know what you think. This is the I have here the ultimate co op game. I want to see, want to know what you think. Okay. okay. D and D is the ultimate co-op game. Because really you can say it's one versus many, but the DM is not trying to win. He or she, whoever is is the is the game master, is uh trying to keep the level playing field. And I think that is a very hard skill to do. And I think he's he's part of their team and trying to keep them interested. And move the adventure along and keep everyone involved. So I think it's like this synergy between all of the players. So it's a cooperative game. And I think they've done a fantastic job of, of making it that way and keeping it even. What do you think? I think
0: given the mindset of most role players, I'd have to disagree with you because d and this is one of the reasons why I don't really play D&D anymore, or, or similar campaign-based role-playing games, because you get so invested in your character. Again, to me, satisfying stories are often, not always, this is not the only kind of satisfying story about, it, but the uh, satisfying story is often about failure. And is often about, it includes things like self-sacrifice, includes things like, in, in the case of heroic fantasy, certainly about things like heroic last stands. But you get so attached to your character and you've spent so much time with them, you're often not willing to let the interests of the narrative trump your own selfish interests in the character continuing existence. And that's why I like one-shots like Durant's or Fiasco, because you you get attached to your character, but the time frame is condensed, and the type of story you're telling is such that you know that the character has a strong chance of not making it out alive. And so you get to you, you just get opened up in terms of the story. So that's an instance of where DD, I think, the the, the story elements are fighting against the game elements I do agree with you however that somebody who a a, a very practiced game master is able to calibrate difficulty just perfectly and if they're able to get everyone on the knife edge and make every victory feel earned and like every defeat could have been reversed if they had known something better uh, going in then that would be good but the the problem there again is that you know defeats in in D&D are often driven by you know just Insurmountable number barriers, as opposed to you know, a clever absence of tactics. Anyhow, uh, so so this this uh, <laughs> so in this topic, we've talked about board games and video games and role playing games. <laughs>
1: next, we can talk about snooker. How's that? I guess sports is the next thing. Uh, how how that, do you feel about difficulty in sports? How about this? The hidden traitor in these co op games. How does that full popula? Because there's shadows over Camelot, the thing, Dead of Winter. These games that now suddenly Bowstar Galactica. There's so you've mentioned all the bad ones. Uh, the why there, is there a good one? The Resistance. Oh, the Resistance. Yeah, uh, that, that's, well, that's a, a social deduction game. I suppose you could you know you could call these other ones.
0: Yeah, I, I actually think insofar as you want to label the Resistance a co-op, which I guess you kind of could, in that the majority of the players are are playing a co-op effectively, then that's an example of a really good, really hard co-op because in the Resistance, most of the time, all things being equal, the spies are going to win. And that makes the Resistance wins all the more satisfying. And indeed, when I win a game of the Resistance as a member of the Resistance, it really does feel earned. It feels like a, like a, like a memorable experience. And that is, I think, an example if you want to shoehorn it rather uncomfortably into the co-op shirt, sure, which I don't think it belongs there. But that kind of sensation, though, nonetheless, is what I get out of a really well-calibrated co-op. Gotcha. So you don't want to talk about sports. Okay, good. So that's going to close us out for this episode of So Very Wrong About Games. Thank you so very much for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at TheGamesYouLike, assuming that this plague has not ended my life. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if you can. Thank you so much again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Take care, and until next week. If you like this show, tell a friend. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Biggin. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at WhatDoesItEat.com. You can reach us by email at SoVeryWrongAboutGames at gmail.com or on Twitter at SoWrongGames. Thanks very much. See you next time and always. Try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.